Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to this 12th edition of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. My name is Ed Hill, and this is the history podcast based around the journals of my great-great-grandfather, William Moby Scott, written way back in the 1840s about his travels around Europe and subsequently in Mexico. So, got to the number 12, and... uh, I just uh, thought I'd say a few things about the episode coming up. At this point, William is travelling down through France by stagecoach, and uh, he's just got to the point where he needs to cross the Alps to get from southern France into northern Italy. Now, as I've mentioned before, Italy isn't a unified country at this point, so he's actually going from the Duchy of Savoy which is under the rule of the Kingdom of Sardinia, and he's going over the Alps into Piedmont, which is a region of northern Italy that at that time I think was also under the power of the Sardinian government. Dad? Yes. Now, this is the journey that William's taking out to Italy to end up in Milan to work on the virtually first certainly I would say commercial railway in Italy, which is going to run from Milan to Venice. And he's travelling out there at the same time as the steam locomotives that have been built in Britain are being transported out to Italy as well. So his journey he takes out there is this one which um, takes you over the Alps. He's going over what's known as the Mount Cenus Pass, which is probably the most used route over the Alps at this time. On his return journey, in a couple of years' time, after he finishes his employment at the railway, he actually goes by a different route along the rivers of Europe, like the Rhine. So he sort of goes back then through Switzerland and through Germany and then into Belgium, I think it is. Anyway, through various river routes back. So... I suppose he did that deliberately to get a chance to see more of Europe. So it's almost like a circular journey that he does firstly out down through France and then returning via the rivers through the other parts of Europe. So I think this is actually quite an interesting episode just because um, it really is an insight into how travelling at this time was so much different to what it is now because this is very much still in the horse and cart age and um, although the technology of steam trains is coming in it's still at its really very early stages so this does give you quite a good idea of what was involved in traveling in these quite hazardous routes for normal people when there wasn't even the technology to build things like tunnels through mountains and 
railways was still very much in its infancy and so you virtually have to go via the topography as it were of the landscape and that means scaling up high mountains to get into Italy from southern France and how those journeys were done at that time. So yeah I hope you enjoy this episode and just to say uh, the usual things I'll reiterate this at the end but uh, you can also get involved with the podcast through things like uh, Twitter there's a Twitter account, Scots of the Historic, that's uh, at 3G Grand Tour on Mr. Musk's now owned Twitter. Mr. Musk sounds, <laughs> sounds a bit like an aftershave, doesn't it? Mr. Musk, Mr. Musk, Elon Musk, the aftershave, egocentric with a hint of megalomania. <laughs> uh, anyway, I'm, I'm digressing. Do subscribe to the podcast, that's important, because the more subscriptions I get, the better The better it is finding and searches and things. You can search for it very easily. If you Google a grand tour with my great-great-granddad, it will come up. It will come up with the Acast website. It will come up with, um, it's on iTunes, and it's on Spotify, and it's on Amazon Music. It's on Deezer, TuneIn, virtually every podcast platform out there that you can think of. Podbay. It's it's out there, so it's very easy to find. you just got to Google those words, and it will materialise magically in front of you on your screen in whatever medium you are using. And uh, there's also a Facebook page as well. That's at Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad, and that should come up as well um, on Facebook. I'm going to start posting a bit more on there and maybe even posting posts. It's still very, very early, and I've been a bit reluctant to do the boost post thing to be honest but uh, perhaps now is time to start doing that so it uh, gets known to a bit of a wider wider audience i suppose but i must say thank you to everybody who is listening at the moment you're a small and <laughs> select but i would say very discerning band of people and i'm greatly encouraged by your listening to the podcast so and these things, they do take a bit of time to grow. But for those of you who are out there listening, I should just say it's very greatly appreciated that you are. So you can contact me via those Twitter things and uh, via Facebook, <laughs> via the Pacemaker page, <laughs> via the Facebook page. It's been a long day. Well, I suppose that's it, really. Do tell your friends if you're vaguely interested in history. Do tell them about the, the podcast. And as I've said before, I think the one thing about it is that it gives a unique first-hand perspective of history at this time from, I would say, the perspective of a, you've got to say, middle class, certainly upwardly mobile, I would suggest, engineer, well-to-do man about town of the 1840s. It'd be quite nice to be described myself for that, wouldn't it? He's a well-known man about town. Uh, but safe to say that William is obviously a man of some status in the society that he's talking about. So that gives it a certain point of view. I suppose, you know, thinking about it, of course, you really only get a point of view from someone who could read and write at that time. So the poor plebs, as it were, <laughs> I don't like using that word, but the poor people on the lower strata of society, of course... It's very hard to get an idea of what their life was like and how they perceived it if they couldn't uh, couldn't write to express it. 
mean, that's pretty blimmin' obvious, isn't it? But it is a huge chasm in history that sometimes, particularly going further back to pre-modern media times of film, television, radio, etc., it's very hard to get an idea of what people's views and perspectives was because uh, they couldn't express it in writing. Sorry, I'm digressing a little bit there, but anyway, I hope you do enjoy this uh, episode. I've, I've tried to keep it a little bit shorter this time, although now I'm waffling on, so that's defeating the object. But I hope you do enjoy this next episode. As I say, I think it's quite a, an interesting one, given the uh, amount of travel and the means of travel that William's experiencing over the Alps into Italy. OK, time to get on with it. Went ahead again, as the Yankees have it, about nine o'clock, and at about twelve past the fort of St. Michael, built on the frightful heights of Mont Saint-André, at an enormous expense, both of money and human lives. This fortress, which completely commands the pass, will long remain a monument of the effort made by a petty and bigoted king, who, even in the nineteenth century, is about as uncaring as those who were in the ninth. So I think these forts that he's referring to are actually called the forts of Eslion, built not long before the time William was travelling. At three, we arrived at the town of Lanslebourg, situated at the foot of Mount Cenus, and here we found a considerable quantity of snow. We stopped here to dine, and the conductor, I remember, advised us to lay in a good stock of provisions to enable us to bear the fatigue of crossing the mountains, as we had now come to the hardest and most perilous part of the journey. Wherever the coach had stopped on this day, we was immediately surrounded by a swarm of beggars, the most clamorous and noisy I had ever met with, and also some of the most miserable objects I had ever beheld. Carita Elemosina was raised in the most deafening cries. That's Italian for charity handouts or charity cries, I suppose. You know, obviously they're beggars clamoring for money. Carita Elemisona was raised in the most deafening cries in the name of all those negligent saints who had abandoned them to every species of physical evil. As the diligence from Turin ought to have arrived at Lanslerberg two hours before us, but had been prevented by the great quantity of snow on the mountain, there were no horses for us. But as this was the mail coach, the conductor immediately went and seized eight horses belonging to the farmers in the village to forward us over the mountain. The mail in this country being worked by the government, and not private proprietors, they are not at all particular whose cattle they take in case of this description. Off therefore we started, with our eight horses, four postilions, and six men walking to render assistance if required, and, on the ascent, both because of the acclivity and the snow, we could proceed no faster than a walk. Bidding adieu to the river, we now began to ascend in reality, in a zigzag direction, up the side of the mountain, or in fact like a stair winding backward and forward. And after toiling in this way for three hours, I did not think we was more than a mile from Lanslerberg in a straight direction. The snow at this time had got so deep that the horses could not draw the vehicle any further, and we had arrived within a short distance of the first recoverado, or roadkeeper's house. We got out, and the horses, in trying to drag it on a little on one side, the diligence upset, and the luggage was obliged to be pulled from out amongst the deep snow. 
We were now to enter quite different carriages, sledges made similar to a small post-chase, just large enough to hold two persons and a small quantity of luggage. Into one of these, me and my friend were placed, and four horses being attached, we were once more on the move, with a number of men who are kept on the mountain, for the purpose of walking on each side to prevent the machine from upsetting. The snow at this time was falling very rapidly, and there was nothing to mark the road but large black crosses placed at regular intervals that shone out in bold relief against the sky. On the bridges, a cross was placed at each corner of the parapet. The snow on the Savoy side of the mountain lay so deep that every trace of the road itself was entirely lost, there being nothing but the aforementioned crosses to mark the track, and where one false step was sure to precipitate you into eternity. About halfway up the mountain we met the party from Turin, and it being necessary to draw a little on one side to allow them to pass, my friend, who did not at all like his situation, got out, which he had no sooner done than he was over head and ears amongst the snow, and was not rescued without considerable difficulty. About every half mile we kept passing the houses of the recoverados, or guides which were built by Napoleon at the time the road was made. They are large, square buildings of two storeys in height, each having a large stable attached for the purpose of sheltering the horses or travellers, who on account of the severity of the weather by sudden storms arising, may be prevented from proceeding, and which is sometimes the case for several days together, as at particular periods you leave the plains below in fine weather, and in the upper regions be suddenly overtaken by storms that detain you prisoner for an infinite period. But happily, this was not the case with us, for after a considerable degree of fatigue and anxiety, we reached the summit about midnight, and after stopping about half an hour and partaking some refreshment, we prepared to descend, which we did at very quick rate. About two o'clock we reached Recoverado number one. The first we met with on the other side was Recovero number 32. All those houses had painted on their fronts in large letters Recoverado number 1 to Recoverado number 32, so that we found even in this desert spot there were no wants of inhabitants. I entered several of the houses and found them very comfortable, large blazing fires and a plentiful supply of provisions, liquors and wines, etc., and several women and children. We now changed again to the diligence and in a short time arrived at Augusta the first town in Piedmont, and aspiring to the dignity of the city, it is situated directly at the foot of the Alps, on the river Doria, known as the Dora Baltea. One of the most celebrated triumphal arches now in existence was erected by the Romans at this place. It is highly enriched, and its proportions are of the most beautiful and perfect kind. Augusta was the birthplace of St Anselm, Archbishop of Canterbury, 16 leagues north-northwest of Turin. Right, so um, I think this is a good place to stop here. Firstly, the, the forts of Ession that he mentions. He calls them Fort St. Michael, I think. I can't find any reference to that geographically, looking at the route that he's taking over um, the Alps from uh, lands le to Piedmont. There are some forts on Mount Saint-André, which he mentions, but they're much further south of Lyon and well off the route that he's taking so um, I think he might be mistaking what he's seeing here for those forts and the only ones that seem to fit the bill in terms of if you look at the other forts built on this pass and they're either built after William's journey or um, so much earlier that they're ruins 
So that's why these forts of Estillon, as they're now known, um, seem to be the only ones that could fit the bill. They're quite impressive. They're sort of out on a big outcrop of rock, which again suggests maybe what he was looking at, overlooking the valley. And they're sort of tiered as well. There's sort of a four rows of military buildings, one behind the other. And then there are other forts that are a little bit further away that are also part of this Port of Cillian. They're actually, each sort of individual bit is named after members of the Savoy royal family at the time, or Sardinian royal family. So I think they're the ones he's talking about, because they're the only ones that seem to um, fit the description and also the location that would have been there at the time. I think the king that he's referring to rather negatively would be at that time, it was a king called Charles Albert, who was uh, king of Sardinia, because Savoy is ruled by the Sardinian royal family at this time. So I think he's talking about Charles Albert, who's actually quite an interesting character. I won't go into too much detail now, because the whole geopolitical thing here gets very complicated. So I'm probably going to try and explain that a little bit later, but he's the king. Personally, as a character, he seems a little bit odd. He was very conflicted. He keeps having sort of crisis of faith about his Catholic faith, and uh, he uh, wore one of these very scratchy undergarments as a sort of penance for um, his uh, lack of faith or whatever it was in Catholicism. But he was, it seems to me, quite a contradictory figure, but he was one of the people uh, later on in his life sort of involved in the beginnings of Italian unification. For whatever reason it is, William certainly doesn't seem to like him very much. This is the thing that there are sometimes where William has an opinion about someone and I imagine he's probably read something in the uh, papers and the latest missives as it were about people and things and things going on Uh, but it's a bit hard to know why he's formed an opinion of this person because historically these sides of their character which may or may not be true uh, aren't necessarily there I mean this is the kind of elements of history which are unknown you can only kind of make sort of assumptions about people's character particularly in an era before modern media, film, television, radio, whatever. It's very hard to get a sense of people, I think, sometimes. This is where I sometimes think there's huge elements of history, which, and you hear professional historians going on about things. And you think, well, that is just your interpretation. I mean, that's all it can be at the end of the day. But there is a huge amount of conjecture, I think, in history sometimes. So what Charles Albert was really like, I don't know. But whatever it is... <laughs> William doesn't seem to like him very much. Typical sympathetic thing to uh, the poor there, describing the beggars as objects. Some of the most miserable objects ever seen. I did like this phrase that he uses when they're pleading for um, money. And obviously, sometimes these days when you travel to um, poorer parts of the world and you may see uh, beggars in the street, unfortunately, have some sort of disability, uh, might be missing various limbs or whatever, which is very sadly the case even today. But this phrase that he uses, every species of physical evil (laughs) that was put upon them, every species of physical evil. I do like that. It's a rather, rather florid way of describing it, isn't it? But uh, yeah, getting back to the being beggars, not very sympathetic viewpoint from William there. Back to uh, Mount Cenis, this pass or called the Mount Cenis. Um, this was really the main route over the Alps at the time. But historically, it goes way back to uh, you know ancient times as a route of getting over the Alps from France to what is now Italy. And there's some suggestions that it may actually have been the pass that Hannibal used to get over the Alps with his elephants. 
but it's a well-known route. And it's still open today. There's still a road that goes over the mountain today. And in fact, I've seen a, a video of someone driving it because it's described as a dangerous road. And it's also been used over various years as a stage for the Tour de France, because you can imagine it's a very testing cycling route to go up this long, steep incline and then down the other side. But looking at this video, I think someone's driving on a motorbike it is the sort of road that people who are keen on testing their driving skills and motorbike skills go over. But it seems to, I would say, on the French, uh, or the Savoy, what would have been the Savoy side, have a relatively gradual incline. And then when it gets over to the more Piedmont or the Italian side, it's a much more zigzaggy and twisty, turny route down. At the very top, there's actually a lake there. They put a dam there and then there's a, a big lake when you get to the top of it. Most of the time it's actually closed because of the snow and ice. So it's actually closed from um, the end of October to uh, sort of mid-May. So most of the year you can't even go over it because the snow is so bad. And of course these days it's been replaced by a, a road tunnel. First there was a rail tunnel built in, uh, I think it's about 1870. And then there's now a road tunnel as well, which uh, is the, the quicker way to get from France to Italy through this route. There are various other passes as well that were around at the time, which also have been now um, substituted by tunnels. In fact, actually not that long after Williams travelling, they actually built a railway over the pass. But it seems to only operated for about two or three years, and then they shut it because there was a equivalent rail tunnel built, which is still used today. Oh dear, I should find the name of that. The Fréjus Rail Tunnel. So that replaced this route. Obviously, it's a very historical pass. Now, the route that William is taking, or the road that William has taken, was built by Napoleon from about 1803 to 1810. It wasn't by him personally, of course, but under his instructions. The main reason was, actually, was because the French ports had been blockaded after the Royal Navy had defeated the French Navy at the Battle of the Nile. So, obviously, there needed to be an improved route to get goods and communications around Europe. So this was one of the main motivations that Napoleon had for improving this and building the road that is still, to a degree, there today. Looking at this video footage, there's uh, some bits of it that I think could originally date back to the time of Napoleon. They're sort of embankments and arches and stuff and um, various bits of architecture which um, may date back to this time and you can see a few tumbled down buildings as well that could possibly be these recoverados that William mentioned you know it's quite a sensible idea I suppose to have points where you could every mile stop off in case the weather got really bad and as William says you could spend there once it got better to continue your journey just goes to show how involved it was to transfer people from a stagecoach onto a sledded coach. And then you had to have all these people around, as well as the horses, pulling the coach and the sled, or the sleigh, to also prevent it from tipping over and help you get out of difficulty if the snow got really bad. So um, you have all these other people helping you. I've seen one illustration of it, which I think... It's very much of the time William's talking about where you can see these, they are literally like a stagecoach on a sledge. So you've got the enclosure that's rather than being on wheels is on, on a sledge. 
and then on this particular illustration there are two horses that are pulling the coach so it's as William describes it he gets into this little coach just for him and his friend and their luggage and I think these were being run fairly regularly almost as kind of like a kind of relay I suppose it was over the mountains just goes to show what quite an involved journey it was then just to get over this bit of the mountains and over to the other side into Piedmont if you wanted to do that journey today you still could do it by car it's approximately 24 miles long i think roughly from Anslerberg to is it, i think it's Sousa is it this is the first town on the other side and uh, as i say i've seen several videos of people driving it because i suppose it's pretty picturesque and i think uh, in the summer months quite a lot of people actually um, stop off in their camper vans or whatever to take in the scenery and stay there but obviously in the winter months, even these days, it gets very, very heavily covered in snow. And I think actually every year they have these great big machines that are a bit like a, a kind of snow combine harvester that um, go over the road, mush up the snow at the front end and then spurt it out to the side of the road to clear the snow. And I think each year when this pass is sort of reopened, there's a little bit of a ceremony amongst the French dignitaries and Italian dignitaries to announce that it's been opened again because it is um, closed five or six months of the year. It probably takes you about maybe 15 minutes to drive it now, something like that, 15 to 20 minutes to drive it. In William's day, particularly if the weather got bad and you got holed up, as he says, in one of these recoverados, it could take you a week or two weeks <laughs> to get over. So, um, the need for building tunnels to improve communications was uh, very apparent, I suppose. Progress, that is what you call progress. Oh yes, William begins the thing with this phrase again, as the Yankees have it, and then just, I, mean, I don't quite know why he says, as the Yankees have it. Well, then we set off, it's just normal English, isn't it? It's not even a kind of particular phrase. He does it quite a lot, he'll use that phrase, like that, as the Yankees have it, and then it's just like a normal, normal English. It's not like, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a particularly American phrase, you know, apple pie or something. It's not like, as the Yankees have it, you know, apple pie. As the Yankees have it, using words. So um, back to the journals. William's now essentially in what is now modern day Italy in uh, Piedmont. And the first town that he mentions there is uh, Augusta. And as he mentions, there's this Roman arch there, quite famous Roman arch. It looks quite badly eroded to me today. And what is slightly unusual about its appearances in Victorian times, although I think it was after William sees it, they actually put a pitched roof on it to preserve it. So there's a tiled roof on top of this arch now, which dates back to, I think, the late 19th century. And obviously that has done quite a lot to preserve it. It's quite a grand-looking arch, but it, it does look, I would say these days, quite eroded by the weather. Right, back to reading from the journal. The next stage brought us to Sousa, the capital of Piedmont. Under its marquises, it is small and inconsiderable, but at the same time it is striking, not only by a population that seems all priests and soldiers, 
but by the pious frescoes that cover the walls even of its meanest buildings. Many of these are ancient and ill-executed. Others are modern and smack most wonderfully of the restoration. On the front of one house was represented the Virgin and the Angel Gabriel in converse suite, encircled with fluttering cupids armed with bows. The parties of another exhibited St. Dominic and the Magdalene. Everywhere, images of purgatory with most corporeal souls burning in flames of most material fire quickened the penitent or threatened the sinner. We had got into the headquarters of superstition, bigotry and priestcraft, for even the trading interests of the place sought the patronage of theology. Death with his scythe hung over the shop, whose inscription intimated that Kisea qua vita, which means here is sold the water of life, or in plain English, brandy. And prayers for the dead and dying are solicited over the door of the inn, whence the timid traveller departs for the perilous Alps. All in this little frontier town, remote and obscure as its situation is, and under the shadows of impending snowy mountains, indicated the vigorous revival of an antique state and feudal power, and all the external testimonies of the rule and sway of his Sardinian majesty, which shone forth in all its glory, the once capital of Piedmont. The king of Sardinia, like the old line of the Bourbons in France, is only king by the will of the Congress of Vienna and Verona, and not the king of the people. After the abdication of Napoleon, the House of Savoy was restored to their possessions on the mainland of Italy. They understood how not to act under the then existing circumstances, but pursuing the mad policy of Charles X of France, they drove the people to revolution, and the king, Victor Emmanuel, fled from Turin and resigned the crown to his brother and successor. However, King Charles Albert recovered the kingdom by aid of Austrian bayonets and was again installed in absolute authority. These events took place in 1821, and as the Austrians and Russians were determined to have a barrier against France, on this side the unfortunate outbreak only served to revert the chains of the poor Piedmontese still closer. Here the great monarch, like some more of those on the continent of Europe, thinks nothing of turning retail dealer and seizing the monopoly of powder, tobacco, cards, paper and salt, and depriving his subjects of the legitimate means of subsistence and paying all their heavy taxes. I had always thought previous to this that we had reached the maximum of taxation in England, but I found that the Piedmontese surpassed us. For such minute points do they carry it on in this country, that no person can put up a notice of a house to let or sell, or anything whatever, but it must be upon stamped paper, and so help to swell the coffers of this petty potentate. Everywhere in this blessed country the monk prowls about and helps also to rob the poor peasant of his hard-earned pittance, and the gendarmes lounge about and interfere in everything. Okay, so I'm going to stop here to explain a few more things that William has discussed. Firstly, again here we have another example of his generally anti-Catholic view about things and religion and countries. When he says we got into the headquarters of superstition, bigotry and priestcraft. Basically, you know, he's seeing all these images above shops and things of holy characters like Mary Magdalene and uh, obviously the idolatry of religion in Catholic countries like 
Silverway and Piedmont is suddenly a bit more apparent to him on things like everyday buildings, I suppose, and shops and things. I suppose this is why he mentions it. But it again comes out as this rather anti-Catholic feeling. The difficulty I have here, because I don't know what William's own religious background is, it's a bit hard to know where he's coming from. He is obviously religious himself. You know, he, he makes a lot of references to divine providence and God. So it's it's not like he's an unbeliever, but whether he comes from a more Presbyterian or non-conformist background, or whether he's sort of what would be Church of England or Church of Scotland or something like that, a more conventional religious background, I don't know. He's obviously definitely sort of anti the more extreme trappings and idolatry of Catholic religion, and he obviously comes from a more, or has a sort of more Lutheran and Protestant feeling about it. He never says the church that he regularly attended or something like that. So I just don't know what his own religious background is and what denomination or movement he is a member of. I suspect being an engineer, he's a bit of a rationalist anyway. So he may be a bit more suspicious of the more fanciful mysteries of the Bible and of Christianity. Also, I should just mention here a little bit of context about his Sardinian majesty. This is Charles Albert, who for some reason he doesn't like. Charles Albert... Firstly, we should say what the Kingdom of Sardinia is, because it's a bit confusing, because obviously Sardinia is a big island off the coast of Italy, but the Kingdom of Sardinia also included not only the island, but also this area of northern Italy close to France. And weirdly, actually, all the royals who came from the Savoy royal family and were called the kings of Sardinia virtually spent all their time in this northern part of Italy, and this was the seat of their kingdom. So why was called the kingdom of sardinia itself the island itself always seems to play a subsidiary role in the kingdom and they hardly ever went there always struck me as a bit odd so okay this is very much like my o-level history here so i don't want to get too involved but after the defeat of napoleon you have the congress of vienna and the countries that had defeated napoleon primarily britain russia austria and prussia they wanted to restore things to the way they had been really before the French Revolution because the whole thing of the French Revolution had created conflict on Europe for about 20 years, including Napoleon's time. So it's all looked upon as being the revolutionary ideas as being this thing that had instigated a great deal of instability in Europe as a whole. So the Congress of Vienna, whose attendants were people like Castle Ray and Metternich and all these people, they're sometimes referred to as the conservative order. So they really will kind of want to try and turn the clock back before all these revolutionary ideas that had happened in the French Revolution and return Europe to a state where you had kings and queens and dukes and dukedoms and stuff like this and reimpose what's called the ancient regime, you know, the old way of doing things. The, you could almost say like the tugging the furlock sort of, all your majesty type thing where monarchies had a much greater role in the running of their countries and quite a bit of power. They're trying to turn back time, really, and quash the revolutionary ideas of actual individuals wanting more power over their lives and more control. So the Congress of Vienna, in a way, they carve up Europe and they create all these things where they're basically trying to establish the old order. And one of the things is the Kingdom of Savoy and Sardinia, or Piedmont Savoy, where William is right now. That gets reinstated Napoleon obviously had been in control, but he's defeated, so that gets reinstated back to the kings of Sardinia, or the House of Savoy, who are the kings of Sardinia. And that's why a lot of this bit of northern Italy is split up with Savoy, Piedmont, 
and Genoa is another small estate. There's the Papal States as well. That's why these kind of bits of Italy are restored. Also as a way to contain France as well, to stop it having expansionist ideas as it did when it was under the control of Napoleon. So it's kind of called the balance of power. You know, this country's here, that will stop that country invading that one, blah, blah, blah. It didn't really work. Well, some people say it did work for a long time because there was peace for quite a long while. Others say all that it did really was try and turn back the clock. The French Revolution had sparked these ideas of uh, individuality and democracy, and once that had been unleashed, you couldn't really put a stop to it. So, getting back to the Kingdom of Sardinia and Charles Albert, who's the king at the time when William's there, a bit of a contradictory figure because he is a monarchist. He's actually a king, but he was also heavily influenced himself as a young man by the ideas of the French Revolution. So, politically, he's actually quite a revolutionary. And as time goes by, after William's time, he actually becomes quite involved as the leader of Italian unification, a person for the Italians to sort of rally behind. And he's very anti-Austrian as well, because Austria, after the Congress of Vienna, has control over elements of Italy, northern Italy, Milan, which is neighbouring to Piedmont. So he doesn't like the Austrian influence, even though I think at some point they'd actually helped him get back on the throne. But anyway, he's generally anti-Austrian, pro-Italian unification, Actually, in sentiment, he is more liberal and more sympathetic to the ideas that have been sparked up by the French Revolution. But he's quite a contradictory character as well, because he still quite fancies being in charge as well. So he does things in it during his reign where he says, yeah, I'm going to get involved and lead the revolution. And then he, at the last minute, backs out and doesn't, and then completely changes his mind and actually arrests the people who was going to help. So I suspect that's maybe why... William is referring to him as this petty potentate. You know, he is only there because of the Congress of Vienna. And I think William is sort of hinting at the idea, actually, that talking about the poor Piedmontese are shackled more and more to the old way of things. I think he's sort of describing that. So I think, actually, William is in some ways reflecting this view. As I said before, you can't really know what the character of Charles Albert was like, but perhaps he was quite a flamboyant character as well. And maybe this is another reason why William has a slightly negative view of him, because he sees him as a bit of a posturing monarch. Um, he's certainly contradictory. I don't know, you could almost say like a sort of Boris Johnson figure in a way. You either love him or you hate him. And so maybe that's reflected in William's views of him. Just a little bit interesting thing as well. William makes this reference to the taxation going on, talking about tobacco and that being heavily taxed. And as we know, William says of smoking, he can certainly do his fair share. So he probably is a big smoker and is uh, resentful of the fact that he's having to pay so much for his tobacco because it's heavily taxed. A few years later after this, because Austria was in charge of Milan as well, and one of the reasons that the people in Milan revolted in the thing that's called the Five Days of Milan, which was another step along the way to Italian unification, was when the people in Milan rebelled against their Austrian rulers, was about the taxation of things like tobacco and everyday products and how heavily taxed they were, and that was led to their discontent. So it's also happening here in Piedmont with the King of Sardinia, of Charles Albert, but this direct everyday thing is a disgruntlement that festers and festers and eventually sparked off in Milan, the five days of Milan, which later led to the Italian unification. So um, so it's interesting William makes a reference to that himself and saying how heavily taxed they are in this country. Also, just quickly as well, when he refers to the gendarmerie, 
I imagine they were armed and almost probably looked more like soldiers and policemen to William. In the UK, it's a bit of a concept that we don't really have. We don't have a gendarmerie in the UK. We just have the police and the army. And in countries like France and others around the world, Italy as well, you kind of have this kind of middle group, the gendarmerie, who are police force, but also linked to the military as well. I mean, in all intents and purposes, they are the police. But in France, you have the, the national police and you have the gendarmerie as well friend of mine who's French, who grew up in rural part of France, who's had uh, that, uh, for some reason, geographically, the gendarmeries tend to be more involved in policing the rural areas of France, said uh, if you got in trouble with the law, it was always worse if you got in trouble with the gendarme rather than the police officer, because they were, they were stricter and uh, a bit more heavy-handed and uh, maybe heavy-booted as well, <laughs> well, if you ended up in a cell with them. So anyway, we don't have a gendarmerie in the UK, but in lots of countries around the world, and particularly in William's time, I think they would have appeared more like soldiers as opposed to police. It's a bit like the National Guard, that they were the military involved in policing and keeping law and order in the country as opposed to fighting wars abroad. Just going back to this thing, now we're in Italy and perhaps an even more obviously Roman Catholic country in appearance and in the sights and sounds that William will see. You will see him quite often make a, a lot of references to things like superstition, bigotry, priestcraft. we must leave Susa and pursue our journey. The road from Susa to Turin, including a distance of 35 miles, lies through a fertile plain watered by the river La Piccolodora, or the Little Dora, and occasionally undulated with abrupt hills and high perpendicular rocks, which become gradually smaller and more remote as the pass opens and the mountains are cleared. These elevations have all been seized for the benefit of church and state, and are covered with dilapidated cloisters and ruined fortresses that now add much to the beauty of the scenes in which they dominate. The dismantled towers of St. Joire and the ruined walls of the famous abbey of St. Benedict still fix the eye and command a valley flowing with milk and honey, and the castle of Aviana lords over the plain above the wretched village which deforms its base and was at one time a dependency of its power. So it's quite hard to find a specific castle that William is talking about here. Most of them are now ruins. It's quite hard to know which one he's actually talking about. Although I do have a little bit of information about this castle of Avigliana, or it's spelled Avigliana, but Avigliana, I think is how the Italians would say it. It was built in the 11th century, and it was probably built by the Marquis of Ardunzinzi. Arduanici of Turin. Basically, it was the main residence of the Counts of Savoy from 1137. But apparently, in the 11th century, Emperor Frederick Redbeard destroyed the castle and burnt the town, and his son, Henry VI, brought new destructions at the end of the same century. So, basically, it was um, a residence of the Savoy family and royal bods in charge. But it came to a sticky end. Thomas of Savoy rebuilt the castle in 1189, and since then it became the residence of the important Count of Savoy, 
But in 1691, after conquering it, the French Marshal Catignan got it definitely demolished, leaving the remains we see nowadays. Now, looking at the remains, I mean, it's uh, just stuck on the top of this craggy mountain rock, and um, most of it's destroyed. There's a sort of prominent bit that I suppose was a tower at one time, but most of it's uh, gone. But I did see a rather attractive video by a, a wedding photographer showing a happy couple embracing in one another's arms just after they'd been married, I think, very stylishly. I think there was a lot of uh, drone work going on there because there's a lot of shots looking down on this uh, castle of Avignon. So maybe it's a place where you can get married or you can... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? You can um, conclude your wedding nuptials after you've uh, done the ceremony and um, maybe it's a good spot for uh, a bit of the old nookie <laughs> as no one alive anymore says <laughs> the word nookie where does that come from I'll have to look the origins of the word nookie for um, carnal relations how about that British slang of uncertain origin for sexual intercourse dating back to the late 19th century, and probably connected to quiet shady nooks or corners where such activity might take place. There is a possible link to the Dutch word neuken, meaning to have intercourse. It made a strong comeback in the 1970s and 80s. I don't know. I'm over-egging this. This couple are obviously beautiful, and they're in love, and what more we could say, they're in a beautiful sitting in the mountains of northern Italy, in this wonderful and romantic-looking Ruined Castle. So what wedding photographer in his right mind would let a opportunity like that go by without filming it with a drone? So anyway, that's this Avignon Castle. This is one of these moments where William kind of makes these huge assumptions, I think. I've got to say, but you know the history he's talking about. I mean, it's only a brief history of it, but I've read it and I'm still not really sure I quite understand it all. <laughs> this is what can make the uh, journals quite hard to research sometimes, because when he says the phrase, what is it? The lords over the plain above the wretched village which forms its base and is at one time a dependency of its power. I suppose that's this kind of romantic way of saying this, like any castle of those medieval eras they did sort of lord power over their surrounding areas so i suppose that's what he means i'm i'm being a bit harsh on old old bill there so uh, back to the journal beautiful were the vines draped round oaks groves of mulberry trees peaches and apricots fields of rich young corn just shooting into the air everywhere, affording a striking contrast of natural and national prosperity to a people sunk in the lowest depths of poverty, superstition, mental infirmity and bigotry. Passed through Giaveno, about halfway betwixt Susa and Turin, the inhabitants of this place are about 8,000 in number and are primarily employed in the manufacture of linen, leather and silk. A great number of silkworms are also reared in this place, the production of which is celebrated for the fineness of its quality. The next stage from this, we pass through the little village of Mosalba. Now, this is one of these words where I couldn't quite decipher what William had written, so I've written here it's either Mosalba or Rosalba. Hard to tell. 
but I can't actually find a reference to this village anyway. So this is probably one of the cases where just names change and it's really hard to know because it's so long ago where he's talking about. So I don't know where this village of Masalba or Asalba is other than it's on the way between uh, Susa and Turin somewhere. <laughs> we passed through the little village of Masalba and arrived in Turin on the morning of the 11th, where I stopped two days, every available moment of which was passed in viewing everything worth attention in this fine city. Right, so I'm going to um, finish the podcast here, at the point where William has reached Turin. It seems a natural place to finish before he starts describing the sights and sounds of that city. Just to mention in that last extract there, <laughs> getting back to what I said about his attitude towards Roman Catholicism, he also describes it when he's talking about the local people <laughs> and uh, of uh, believing in Roman Catholicism as a mental infirmity. <laughs> so it's, it's, I think sometimes he's a bit heavy-handed with his um, insults. <laughs> I mean, we all have our feelings about religion, and uh, some of us are believers and some of us aren't, but I'm, I'm not sure I'd actually say that someone who believes in Roman Catholicism is mentally infirm. <laughs> oh dear. This is perhaps where you might say William's use of language is uh, a little heavy-handed or, or clumsy, maybe, shall we say. Anyway, that's the end of this episode this time. As I usually say, those usual social media ways of engaging with the websites there's the twitter account scott of the historic and that's at 3g grand tour so that's the at and then the number three letter g grand tour then there's also the uh, facebook page as well which is at grand tour with my great great granddad so hopefully you can search those two things and it will appear and as i say do subscribe to the podcast if you can if you're enjoying it i hope you are and do by all means message me in any way you can on those various platforms It'd be great to get some feedback from people out there in podcast listening land so that concludes the episode once again as i always say thanks for tuning in not that you do tune in anymore with podcasts thanks for clicking that mouse or tapping that screen and uh, listening to the content and uh, I look forward to welcoming you to the next instalment. Mm -hmm.